Welcome to the Upside Podcast, powered by Upside Global and hosted by Julian Blinn, founder and CEO of Upside Global. The Upside Podcast is listened to weekly by over 6,000 sports and tech executives from all sports leagues and teams in the United States and around the world. Julian has been developing technologies for professional sports teams for over 10 years and has worked for major tech companies along with sports tech startups. In each episode, Julian interviews global leaders in sports to share knowledge on emerging technology in the sports industry and how these technologies can help improve the performance of individuals and organizations both on and off the playing field. And now here's your host, Julian Blinn. So today we have the honor to interview again a group of sports performance experts. So first we have Alexi Pianozzi who is the strength and conditioning coach for the Pittsburgh Penguins, a top NHL team. So welcome back, Alexi. Thanks for having me, Julian. Great. Uh, and then we have uh, Dr. Mark with the former head of the trainer for the LA Lakers. So welcome back, Marco. Thank, thank you, Julian. Thank you for having me. Great. So guys, what I want to talk about with you today was first to go over the, the methods to figure out if an athlete is overtraining or, or undertraining. You know, what works, what doesn't work, what you guys have tried maybe in the past. And then we'll talk about an emerging area called uh, shockwave therapy. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we'll talk about uh, AI-based injury prevention tools like Zone 7, uh, Gemini Sports, and other platforms that you guys might maybe have come across. So how does it sound? Yeah, sounds good to me. Sounds good. Great. So first, you know, what I want to talk about is, you know, the various types of methods to figure out if an athlete is overtraining or undertraining, right? And you know, I've seen different teams using, for example, blood analysis solutions from companies like Orico, and that's the claim that in five minutes they can tell you if an athlete is overtraining or undertraining. Uh, another method that I've seen was, you know, using GPS as a way to measure the load, like distance run, and then uh, also uh, companies building EMG sensors, right, to measure muscle fatigue. So. Uh, first of all, have you guys used, you know, what do you guys use to know if your athlete is under-training or over-training? Who wants to start? Um, I, I can start with this one. Uh, yeah. One of our primary metrics that we've played around with a little bit over the past couple of years is uh, heart rate variability or HRV. Uh, yeah. Doing some regular, regular as possible readings. Um, it's becoming a little bit more common practice that athletes are collecting their own HRV now with aura rings, whoop bands, you know, sleep eight, uh, things like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, sometimes it's an integration with hardware they might already be using on their own. Other times we still try to maintain a, a team collection kind of first thing in the morning when the team arrives before a meeting. Um, it's an interesting field, I think, because it has a lot of promise sort of assessing the underlying uh, sort of state of the autonomic nervous system. But at the same time, uh, you know, anyone who's looked into it, I think, would also say that it can be potentially a noisy argument if you're not standardizing your noisy measurement, if you're not standardizing your conditions or, you know, we're, we're recording players after they've come into the arena. So they've woken up, they've, you know, increased arousal by driving into the building. They, you know, maybe they, they talked to someone, had a good or bad conversation on the way in that, again, could affect sort of the underlying physiology. But we've sort of taken the approach that if we can... You, if we can recreate the same standardized conditions each time, at least we maintain that throughout the measurements and can hopefully connect the dots between those sessions. But also recognizing that it's just kind of one piece of the puzzle to determining if somebody is undertrained or overtrained. 
um, you know, a conversation with the athlete. How did they perform last night? How did they sleep last night? What was their energy when they woke up? Is their energy changed in the hours since they woke up? You know, I think those are all kind of pieces of the puzzle that you can put together, really, if an athlete is overtrained or undertrained. And mm-hmm. you know, Marco, with his time at the Lakers, would probably agree when you when you have an 82 game schedule and you're traveling across time zones and you're playing like no nobody's very often well recovered and you know feeling great. So you're always kind of under recovered or under prepared. But mm-hmm. I believe you know that's kind of the nature of pro sports. If you're talking more of a, a longitudinal year long training, or if you're an Olympic athlete for four years and you're you know trying to peak at that point, then I think you can create a little bit more periodization, a little bit more sort of plateaus and peaks and, uh, and ramps. But, you know, in, in professional hockey or professional basketball or baseball, whatever it might be, it's, it's a little bit difficult to try to assess that readiness, I think, on a daily basis and expect there not to be large oscillations or large changes based on travel, based on an increase in minutes last night. The game went to overtime. It was a more physical game. It was a more running game. Uh, you know, what were the, you know, more physical on the ice in hockey, for example. So I think there's a lot of a lot of context that goes into whether an athlete is over or undertrained. And I think, you know, HRV is something we've used, but again, recognizing that it's only kind of one piece of the puzzle to try to really figure out the state of the athlete. Yeah. And, and, no, I mean, and, yeah, go, I was going to ask maybe uh, Marco, uh, Alexi, maybe to explain, uh, how do you know if based on the HRV score, how do you know if an athlete is under-training or over-training? Maybe because people, that might be obvious to you, but maybe not for for some people. Can you explain yeah. that a little bit? For sure. I think one of we primarily look for over-training a little bit more than under-training, or um, perhaps not getting an adequate recovery response to whatever modality we might be using, or from last night's game or yesterday's practice. Um, we don't typically see as many athletes, at least in my experience, under-trained or under-prepared. Now, this could be different if you have a low-minute guy. Maybe it's a bench player in basketball or a healthy scratch player in hockey who just isn't playing in the games on a regular basis. Then I think you can create that situation where somebody might be undertrained. But for the majority of players who are playing every night, you know, in hockey, it's 15 to 25 minutes. In basketball, you know, it could be, you know, 30 to 40 minutes, whatever that might be. Like, they're less likely, I think, to be undertrained. Um, but more likely to be under-recovered or under-prepared for the next game. So we tend to monitor the overtraining a little bit more than the under-training. And, you know, heart rate variability is just a simple measure of the time between RR intervals of the heartbeat. And with the basic understanding that increased variability between the time between those points is a good thing, is an indicator of increased parasympathetic activity um, and a decreased RR interval or less variability implies you know in most cases a more sympathetically dominant state that might be associated with oh overreaching or under recovered something of that nature but within that context we also have to recognize that you know players are very different an individual set point it's not simply always higher is better lower is worse you know the one person marco's average might be you know his rmssd might be 35 and mine might be 100 so if i come in you know if i come in at 40 one day that's going to be a pretty big change for me but if marco comes in at 40 it's a pretty small change for him and it's more deviations based on the individual's norm i think than kind of a set yep. value which makes hrv a little bit trickier to utilize in a team context i think but can still provide a lot of value yeah okay. makes sense no. go ahead marco. Yeah, 
No, I mean, I'd, I'd like to hit th three great points and, and we can kind of keep going on, on this part. You know, one he, he mentioned as far as standardization, as far as setting a baseline for every athlete, because every athlete is going to be different. So mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the key things. And that applies to anything that you do, whether it's injury prevention, any type of analysis, any type of analytics, um, any assessment that you're doing is creating a baseline for the athlete and kind of going based on, on, on that, that part. Um, second, he, he also touched upon it as far as um, either undertraining un, or uh, overtraining, or more importantly, like you mentioned, un, under recovered. Um, you know, there's a saying mm -hmm. out there: oftentimes, an athlete or someone isn't overtraining; they're more likely under recovered. And that's the other trick about it, is trying to find out what recovery method is best for each individual, because it's not a one size fits all. It may not just be a normal trick; it may be just a cold tub, and it may be a firefly, it can be anything. But identifying what's how this athlete is going to respond. Uh, best to this type of recovery method, which is something simple, simple as a stretch, a massage, whatever it is, type of thing. And that's what you want to do. And then also, like Lexi mentioned, as much as you try to do the traveling and, you know, when it comes to even, even to like injury wise, it, it's rare that once the season begins, an athlete is anywhere near 100% of their full capacity throughout the season. You know, if you get an athlete in the 90s, 90, 91, let's say 90, 91% um, healthy recovered, that's like an amazing job. I mean, most of these athletes are in the, you know, they're, 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 they're stuck in the eighties, maybe in the 70%, but it's, it's rare. I would never able to see during the mid season, prime season travel in that an athlete anywhere near hundred percent recovery. And if someone tells you, oh yeah, this person, this athlete gets to hundred percent recovery, that's a bunch of BS. Cause that's not going to happen. It's impossible for somebody with all the traveling, the eating, lack of sleep, all that stuff type of thing. Um, and that's kind of, you know, you touch upon the type of thing. So, um, and, and I agree as far as what he mentioned, as far as it's whether you're going to see somebody under train and, and there's ways that we kind of monitor these athletes. Like you mentioned, if you don't play certain minutes or you don't work, uh, you don't, uh, during the game, you got to make sure that you train there afterwards. And that's what you should do. We keep the athletes afterwards, get a heart rate monitor, track, and then make sure to try to replicate and apply that same load that, that they would simulate during a game. So we can kind of keep them at, at, at a recovery stage and, and a train stage so they don't under train. So when they do get in the game and be able to do it, so we're able to track some of that stuff as well. Um, now, as far as what we used to do, um, unfortunately, I don't know why, but a lot of NBA players do not like needles. So we did not do some of the blood stuff. Uh, yeah. We did try the saliva to try to kind of do the, the cortisol levels. But one of the downsides to that, that we had to send it over to GSSI. By the time we got it back, it would be a couple of, a couple of days later. Then, you know, we would try to create a pattern. And obviously, we used to use force plates. We used to travel with force plates, and we would do the force plate tapping on that part. Um, for the athletes. So it, and that's the other thing also trying to find what athletes are going to be compliant when you do type of the recovery process. What are they willing to to you know participate? What are they willing not to participate? Um, even sleep, you know, like I tell you a quick story. Um, we tried the uh, a long time ago when I was with there, we, we were trying the Oracle rings and braces. Even this is before even they got into the bubble. And I went up to one player at one of our events. I'm like, hey, you know, I need you. Can you do my testing this out? I want to see how your sleep patterns. And, you know, and he, he kind of came to us like, so if I wear this, you'll be able to tell when I sleep, when I don't, right? It's like, well, yeah, that's the whole point. I want to see your sleep pattern. He doesn't want so, you, know. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. And then he's like, uh, well, so you're telling me if we in, in New York, you'll know that I don't get back to three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning sleep mm -hmm. and I'm only sleeping four or four hours. And it's like, well, who gets this information? Like, well, we use it to try to help the coach. Like, well, man, is management going to get this? Well, yeah, management's going to get this. He's like, no, thank you. I don't want to participate. So compliance go. is also a key thing on, on that part. So, yeah, I mean, it's tricky. So it's tough. Uh, I think you mentioned, Marco, uh, being able to measure like cortisol. I actually came across, which I thought was interesting. But it started that build, it's building a patch to measure glucose, cortisol, mm -hmm. uh, sweat, electrolyte in one patch. 
all in one. Yeah. And that's that's kind of amazing because typically you know one patch can measure hydration electrolyte and that's it. You know? So I think by having those non-invasive uh I guess maybe wearables, that's a better way to uh I mean the the Ura ring is a great example, right? It's like everybody most people wear rings, right? So they don't mind. Correct. Uh, so I think it's you know it's a new wave of, of innovation. Uh, the, the, the only mind if you're in Miami or New York. That's right. Or LA. <laughs> or LA. <laughs> uh, or uh, hey. Yeah. Uh, so then you know the, the next topic I want to talk about is the you know I've seen a, a growing number of teams using what what they call shockwave therapy solution, and for those people who don't know, you know we may not be familiar, right? So shockwave therapy is a non-invasive outpatient alternative to surgery for those with many joint and tendon disorders. Mm -hmm. So what it does, it sends acoustic shock waves into the bone or soft tissue, re-injuring uh, re the area on a cellular level and breaking up the scarring that has penetrated tendons and ligaments. And I'm mm -hmm. not an expert in any way into this, right? So there's a couple of companies like uh, Cure Medics uh, and Bitnet, they offer those types of therapies. So, First of all, have you guys used, you know, shockwave therapy before? And if so, how effective is it, uh, in your opinion? Yeah. Um, no, I've used shock, I've used shockwave. I love shock, using shockwave, especially like you mentioned, when it comes to a lot of chronic issues, specifically tendonitis, whether it's Achilles tendonitis, patella tendonitis, yeah. um, or even muscular strains. Um, that was one of the first things when I became the head of trainer with the Lakers. I purchased as far as for for our teams out there. We used, I think, the company we purchased from was Paisa Wave. Okay. Um, but shockwave, I've used it. I use it a lot. It's a regular basis. You can also use it pregame, but it just depends on the parameters that they're using. And like you mentioned, it is creating a little bit of a um, scarring or, or injury. It's, it's almost like an alternative. If you're familiar with PRP type of thing, mm -hmm. it's something mm -hmm. that turn, you, you're creating a little bit of inflammation because you're trying to kind of keep, create the healing process in that part. That's what yeah. shockwave. It's not invasive. Um, it's it's pretty much pain-free unless certain areas, depending on the parameters, you may create some discomfort in that area while you're doing the treatment, but it should resolve within a couple of hours. Um, all the all, all our athletes I've worked with, with any type of chronic issues, mm -hmm. I've gotten great success, success rates with the exception, I think one athlete did not see any um, positive results, but I'm a huge Shockwave fan. Okay. And that was like many years ago that you guys used that? A couple of years ago? Uh, I, bought, I bought it with the Lakers when I took over in 2016. Okay. So you were early then. Mm -hmm. I think, um, yeah, great. Um, Alexi, what, what is your take? Have you used that before? Or? Uh, we've used it a little bit. Um, I think we in the NHL, we tend to have a little bit less um, sort of tendonitis based, you know, Achilles and, and patellar tendons, things like that. Not definitely not yeah. as common in the NBA. One area that is, I think, interesting, or at least getting some more attention now is like shockwave with uh, like bone healing and stimulating osteoblast formation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the NHL does get a lot of broken bones, a lot of shots off the ankles and hands yeah. and things like that. So, you know, if you can find a way to improve the healing of bones or, you know, shorten that time for that fracture to heal, you really got something in the NHL, I think. So we have used it a little bit in that case. Um, I, I, I feel like we haven't had overly good or bad results. You know, at, at that point, I think if we can, it, it's difficult in a team setting to, you know, measure if you're actually laying down more osteoblasts. It's hard to tell if, the, you know, the time course, instead of four weeks, it was three weeks and four days, and you got maybe four athletes in a season, you use it, it's hard to kind of really create whether or not it's been a successful endeavor. But I remember reading an article about it, and it interviewed something like 200 ortho, uh, orthopods throughout the United States. 
and they said they knew about it. They thought it was promising technology. There was some good research suggesting that it could be beneficial, but like 11% of them were using it. And so the whole- They were not of, using it. They, they were only like 11% were using it. The topic of the article, oh. article was essentially, we know so much about it, why is no one using it? And it was a really mm -hmm. interesting question. And the, if, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, I'll have to dig out the, the study again. It wasn't even a sort of a cost thing. It was just, it was almost just like they never got around to trying it. They never got around to using it or they wanted to wait for more research. And, and I think it has shown some good promise and especially in that, you know, that fractured healing for us. But, you know, if Marco's telling me that he's getting great results on chronic mm -hmm. like, like tendinopathies and stuff, then mm -hmm. I think uh, what, work, what works for one person may not work for the other. But if it's shown to be beneficial and has some potential, then I'm you know, certainly open for exploring something like that. And I think that's why we've used it a little bit with fractures and said, hey, we can we can try to apply this. Maybe we'll get a couple extra days early out of it. Maybe we can load that foot or that wrist or that ankle or whatever it is a little bit earlier. And in, yeah. in the context of an NHL season or an NBA season, especially as you get closer to playoffs or you're in playoffs, you know, one day, two days, three days, that could be the difference in, you know, playing in game six or playing in game seven or not playing at all in, in the series. So, uh, you know, I think it does show some promise based on the literature I've seen, but mm -hmm. yeah, we haven't used it probably as much as, uh, as the Lakers or, or, or Marco has in the past. And, and what's the, do you guys know what's the average price uh, of the, like, you know, a machine to do uh uh, yeah, the, they vary anywhere between like twenty-five thousand to forty-five thousand dollars. So it's a one-off. It's a one-off, or not? You buy it once, you pay it once. Correct. It's not a subscription, right? No, it's not. It's, it's not. It's not a subscription. You you buy it once, um, and then that's it, type of thing. But you know, they they are they tend to be a little bulky. They tend to be yeah. a little heavy, so it's they're not very easily to travel with, like an ultrasound oh, yeah. unit or like that. Um, I remember we had to get a special case for it because one, obviously, for forty-five thousand dollars. We had to, yeah. to get a special case for it and travel with it, and, and, it, and it's pretty, pretty good size. So it's nothing that's you know you can put in a small uh, trunk or chest and like kind of let's go like something yeah. even like a laser, today, which they're pretty small portable. Um, but yeah, that's that's one of the things. Okay, uh, that makes sense. So maybe I'll, I'll look into that. I won't buy one, but you know I can talk to some of the, the vendors. <laughs> um, hey, you got uh, around. Go 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 right ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't need one. So. Um, Hey, last question. I wanted to talk to you about, uh, you know, there's been kind of a, a, a lot of hype, I would say, about the emergence of those AI-based injury prevention tools or platform. One that comes to mind is Zone 7. Uh, another one is the Gemini Sports. And there's many other ones, but, you know, this platform typically they use like advanced AI and machine learning to try to predict potential risk of injuries. Um, and, you know, for example, I remember there was one vendor one of the issue was because it was AI based, they were getting uh, the the trainer was getting keep getting flagged of potential injuries. Right, you had like twelve guys getting flagged. Hey, you might want to check those twelve guys uh, for specific injuries. Right, and you know in the end, the feedback from from that team was you know it, it was making his job almost more difficult on a daily basis. Uh, anyway, so have you guys used any sort of AI based solution? You know, does it really work? You know, what are the pros and cons, in your opinion? Um, for myself, I, I haven't really used anything as far as AI to try to be the predictors. But at the, I don't know. I mean, at, at the same time, obviously, when it comes to the risk of injury for an athlete, it's either the percentage or or it or also comes down to the kind of the risk reward. Um, yeah. You know, 
like Alexi could probably also tell you is, you know, if, if you're in game seven of the Stanley Cup finals, you get a guy that the AI is telling you he's in a red flag. Are you really going to go to the coach and the GM say, sorry, this guy can't play. He's a star player, but he's out of game seven yeah. um, of the Stanley Cup because we got a red flag on him. No. Um, he's going to play anyway. He's going he's to play anyway. Correct. I mean, I'm not going to tell Kobe Bryant to save game seven against the Boston Celtics or go to the yep. GM with a coach. I mean, if I do that, I might as well just pack my bag and walk out the building right away because <laughs> yep. that's what's going to happen. Uh, but I, I haven't really used much of that AI as far as the predictors or the percentage wise. Yep. Uh, Alexi? I've sat down with uh, Zone 7 uh, or, or been, been in a conversation with Zone 7, and I think Kitman Labs is also doing uh, a similar kind of AI drip. And so got the got the the information from each of those. It's really interesting stuff for sure. Um, I think when it comes to sort of predicting injury, the two things that came to mind, one similar to what we talked about an athlete being over or under recovered or, or, or prepared or trained is I think they're so they're so context driven. And one of the one of the great things about, you know, AI or data is that it kind of strips out the context, but also strips out the bias, you know, which is great. You get unbiased look at numbers or these patterns or, or these stats, things like that. But when it comes to injury prediction, I think the context is, is so important. Like, like Marco saying, at what point in the season are you at? Is that a dense period? Is that a, is that a lighter period? Was the athlete dealing with, you know, a personal issue at home? Was the athlete sleeping well? Was they, you know, there's, there's so many things. Did their minutes go up because of another injury on the team or did their minutes go down because, you know, they were playing bad and they were arguing with the coach. I think there's there's a lot more contextual factors in there that I'm not sure the AI quite comprehends yet. Um, okay. So I, I'm a, I was a little skeptical hearing about it, just in the sense that not that it couldn't be great one day, but it probably needs a little bit more refinement because once you get that number two, as Marco alluded to, then you have to deliver that message to the coach, to the yeah. player. And I think you know, once once we understand the AI a little bit better and zone seven is, you know, a little bit more optimized kind of thing, then we need to work on how do we take that information and transfer it into a sports setting and make it usable on a daily basis. Because you know, when we use HRV, for example, we'll see a, a player who's, you know, whose HRV score is bad the day after a game. You know, it's low, it's under-recovered, it's, 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 you know, it's a strong deviation from his norm. But, you know, the coach needs, needs him to go out on the ice and, and, and practice or coach needs him to play that day whatever it might be mm -hmm. we're still going to tell him our message is typically you can go out there and have the best game of your life today but the underlying physiology that's going on in the background might just be different based on you know that hrv ring it doesn't mean you can or can't do anything but the underlying yeah. physiology is going to be a little bit different that day which shouldn't affect you these athletes are amazing at at uh, compensating and finding a way to get the job done so mm -hmm. uh, I'm a little, I, I'm optimistic about what AI could do for the injury prevention space in the future. I think we still have a little bit of a ways to go. Mm -hmm. And the second prong of that, I think, is they just need to collect more data. And, you know, I'm definitely coming from a sport where data is probably the least popular amongst or the least utilized amongst MLB, NBA, NFL. I think the NHL is a little bit slower on the uptake on that front. So, you know, collecting data from hockey players and hockey games and hockey injury rates I would imagine a little bit different than NBA, a little bit different than the English Premier League, a little bit different than, you know, um, other football or soccer leagues around the world, of which I think they have a little bit more data. So mm -hmm. I'd also like to see them build up their hockey database or their collection of information related to hockey injuries at different levels, at different, you know, positions, things like that, before I would feel a little bit more confident in 
some of the some of the observations or the uh, the findings the AI software is coming out with. Yeah, and I think it's interesting you mentioned the uh, the data, right? Because I think when I talked to Zone Seven, and I'm sure maybe they are heady when I say that, but I think they said they collected data from ten thousand injuries in soccer, right? Yeah. My thought was that if your hockey team, maybe that has changed, right? But how is that relevant <laughs> for mm -hmm. for your sports, right? Maybe they're collecting the data from the from their customers as they yeah. go, right? But it has to be specific to that that particular customer, right? The sports. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, I think we, we have some ways to go, right? Maybe it's five years from now, 10 years from now. It's yeah. promising, but I think the, the model needs to be refined and, you know, but it's, it's in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It, it, it's an intriguing field. I think it's going to provide, again, stripping out the context and stripping out the bias has a lot of benefits, but yeah. like anything else, it also has some weaknesses. So, you know, that'll be, that'll become another tool in the tool belt to look at some things objectively without you know anybody's bias and but you know how you eventually use that in the sports setting on a daily basis is going to have to be subjected to bias it's going to have to be subjective to the team culture the attitude of the coach yeah. the attitude of management the attitude of the player etc cetera, etc cetera. so there's going to be a, a big learning curve i think once that data is a little bit more refined mm -hmm. learning how do we actually utilize it in the team space yeah yeah and and, and, and just like Lexi said, just like this last, your last couple of words, it's basically it's just da data, information, tools in the toolbox. But at the end of the day, it's how you're going to utilize that that information that you're that you're getting and apply it and, and to to the athlete or, or to the team setting type of thing. Because like I said, everything can tell you is green, everything can tell you is yellow, everything continues red. But yeah. the situation, when, where, how, and that's how you apply it. So it's just information that you have um, to help you make a, a better, more informed decision, basically. But are you guys saying that the data that's been or the insights being generated by those platform AI, they don't do maybe a, enough of a good job to tell you how to communicate that with the coach, or how to best use that, or in the training program, or? Well, I think I think that itself will will only tell you you know statistically what is likely to happen or not happen or how likely and how yeah. is. Now you know everything. Everything we do has you know carries some level of risk. When you put a, a barbell on an athlete's back with three hundred mm -hmm. pounds, there's a risk of low back injury. There's a risk yeah. of yeah. injury. Now you know I would argue in most professional experienced athletes that's a very low risk, so we assume that risk very easily. But you know when you're if, if you're going to tell me that you know we got a game tomorrow and Marco's chance of a hamstring injury is eleven percent and he's mm -hmm. one of our top players, well. Can I live with 11%? Like, that's not that high. That's a pretty good chance he'll be fine. And I need him. We're probably not going to win without him. So how yeah. do we interpret that 11%? Is that a lot? Is that a little? Should I, is that no, more than normal? Is that, you know, that kind of information I don't think you get from the data. That has to be interpreted by the person receiving the data and then the sports performance team or whoever might be, in, you know, relaying that information to decision makers or making the decision themselves. Yep. And then, and then like the old saying goes, are you okay with a 70% Michael Jordan on the court versus a non-starter at 100%? Yeah. Depends, right? Uh, depends what you're talking about. Anybody would take about. Michael Jordan at 75, 70%. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think most people would do that. Um, so, hey, one last question for you guys. Uh, one, so, Marco, first of all, for you, who do you think is going to win the NBA title this season and why? Uh, right now, I think in the finals, I'm going to be predicting – the Denver Nuggets and the yeah. Boston Celtics in the finals. In the finals, and who's going to win? 
I'm going to go with the Celtics just because they have a little more experience. They've been kind of through the struggles yeah. on the on, on the playoffs. I'm going to have to go with the with the with the Boston Celtics, unfortunately. But okay. it is what it is. All right. Type of thing. Uh, Alexi, what's your prediction? Uh, I'm a, I'm a big Steph Curry fan, so I'm going to okay. have going to be hard to vote against uh, Golden State. You know, they they get everybody. You know, they keep everybody healthy down the stretch. They got you know the best shooter in the game. Uh, I'm I'm gonna say Golden State, but okay. I, I think Boston's been playing well too. So maybe they maybe there's your final there. But okay. the Sixers are looking pretty good. The Sixers, right? I think they're a second uh, on there's the whole, Eastern Conference. A lot of good teams, it seems like. Yeah. It's kind of you know in the my 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 from a distance it always looked like you kind of knew who was gonna be in the finals in the NBA for a while. Now yeah. it's like oh, there's six, seven, eight teams that are okay. Mm-hmm. Playoffs, you never know what could happen. Somebody gets hot, somebody gets healthy or hurt, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I like it. Alexis prediction. Like I said, Golden State isn't playing well right now, but they do. That's the one thing about when you get to, to the playoffs. When you have yeah. people, players that are vets and have more playoff experience, that's going to take you a lot further than than teams that are playing great in the season. But when they get to the playoffs, they don't have that playoff experience, and then that's what where they die down. That's why I think the Denver will probably get there or be up there, but because they have like experience. Same thing with Memphis; they're not doing play well. Boston, Boston has had experience, and I agree with the Golden State has had plenty of experience. They yeah. got plenty of vets to be able to kind of pull it through, and they, as I say, put you know hit the switch when the playoffs c- come around. So yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Alexis right with the with Golden State and uh, Boston. Okay, great. And I want to ask you, Alexi, one last question, if I may. Who do you think is going to win the Stanley Cup this year? I'm joking. But... Pittsburgh Penguins. <laughs> okay, all right. Fair enough. But that's it. So, look, thank you guys for your time today. Uh, always great. And, um, you know, see you on the next one. But thank you, guys. Good. That was great. Right. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you, Julie. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To access past episodes and other research, articles, and analysis of sports technology, please visit our website, theupside.us. Subscribe to the Upside newsletter and receive full access to our sports tech business letter and website. Royalty-free music is provided by ibaudio.com. The Upside podcast provides timely insights and interviews with global leaders in sports technology. Until next time, keep looking to the Upside.